Welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together, we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Perspective. Some days it's hard enough to get into first gear, let alone take conscious strides towards achieving big picture aims and goals. It all just seems too hard. Even with the best of intentions, we're continually being given seemingly compelling reasons not to pursue our passions. That work deadline, that hangover, that complete series of Fargo on Netflix, just to name a few. My next guest really puts the word excuse into perspective. With a growing resume of successful music and sporting events to his name, Jamie Santilli had developed a reputation for himself as a self-made booking agent and events manager who delivered on his word and cared about his act's well-being first. Rare qualities in a game often plagued by shady operators and slippery talent managers. A routine health checkup in 2014, just a week out from a six-week trip to the USA with his fiancée, changed Jamie's entire world. Join Jamie and I as we discuss the mental game to rehabilitation, overzealous dads at freestyle scooter events, getting hustled by talent managers, and more on this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Jamie, you've done all sorts of interesting stuff, man. I feel like we originally met in a co-working hub, both kind of trying to do our own entrepreneurial thing, right? So you were you were running events at that time, I, I think, and managing music talent across Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, yeah, yeah, I was doing a bit, um, pretty much, yeah, right across Melbourne, um, just up and coming acts and stuff like that. I was looking after bookings at the Revolver Band Room, so the front room at Revolver Upstairs, the very well-known Melbourne nightclub. An institution uh, of sin, some might yeah, say. Definitely. <laughs> uh, it's not that bad. It worked out. I don't know. It, like, it, it is what it is, but it's it's not as bad as people seem. It's a very well-run yeah. business, you know. Like, it's part of a group of businesses. It has the Toff in town, Cookie, and, like, for people in Melbourne, those are very well-known places and things like that, and even tourists to Melbourne. Like, you know, Cookie's very well-established, and Toff in town is another well-known, like, you know, gig venue and things like that. Um, and that was interesting. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. We ended up sitting, yeah. Opposite desks in this co-working hub and then got talking, I guess. Yeah. That's right. And yeah, I was running my little digital agency startup. And I remember just thinking, geez, this guy's doing really interesting stuff. Like I'd love to be going out and, and working all week to set up my, my real job, which is like running these big events in like the heart of Melbourne, getting all the the cool kids down and having all these acts you were always talking to. It just seemed really exciting and energetic to me. And I think um, I want to delve into that further. And a few of the other things you've done, like I remember you were ahead of the freestyle scooter craze and you were in retail there and running those events and we've got Thousand Mountain, all this stuff. So we'll we'll come back to that. But I think because we we started on this kind of like adversity uh, side of topic. Um, We'll keep riffing on that because I feel like the whole COVID thing, in some ways you were probably better prepared than most to deal with something gigantic like that. Yeah. I'm segueing across to your sort of life around 2014 when everything was kind of going really smoothly. You were running events, things were taking off. You have your beautiful partner who has now become your wife, Jay. Um, but then something kind of came out of left field, which pretty much potentially derailed your whole life, even your existence itself. Do you want to sort of take us back to that, Jamie, and kind of what, what happened there? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, in 2014, um, I I guess like I'll start with from the top of it. I um, had just gotten back from a business trip in Sydney, um, found a lump on my neck. It was a bit odd <laughs> to say the least. And um, it kind of, it grew, but then it went away. Anyway, I still went into the doctors, got an ultrasound done. Uh, going to the doctors three days later for results, get told to pretty much pack a bag, go straight to the oncology ward at one of the local hospitals down here. Obviously, at that moment, I kind of just, like, my doctor was right on it. He's like, I've already called ahead, got a bed for you, get going, kind of thing. He's like, we don't have time to waste. And I was obviously, at that point, I probably didn't panic immediately. I kind of still had some rationale to me because it hadn't sunken in. And I was like, hold on a minute. Why am I going to the oncology ward of all places? And he's like, look, they need to do further testing. One of the lumps is looking pretty severe. Fast forward four days later, being in the hospital, getting poked and prodded and all kinds of tests and um, everything like that, I uh, got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, stage two, thankfully, I say now, that now knowing more about it, because uh, it could be much more severe. <laughs> um, so yeah, like you said, I, th- I, was, I was literally two weeks out from a six-week US trip with my fiance at the time, now wife, um, flying really. Like I said, just got back from Sydney, um, was booking an act called um, Albert Sold at the time, who was doing some really cool stuff, playing with like Calais from Block Party and doing some really cool tours and really taking off um, and had just booked out, you know, the next six weeks of gigs so that I could go on this trip and everything. And then that happened, uh, you know, breaks get pulled, uh, cancel the trip, uh, you know, tell, tell your partner firstly what's going on. And then I think for my family as well, it hit home a bit harder because my grandma had gone through battles and I mean, not that it's expected that older people will go through cancer battles, but it was a little more, okay, this is something that can happen when you're older. But prior to that, my brother, when he was 26, um, had testicular cancer. So we had already kind of ridden that wave much earlier on because he's uh, 14 years my senior. And it was just, for my parents, it was just like deja vu. It's like, uh-huh. what do you mean? <laughs> um, so it kind of rocked us pretty heavy in that way. Um, I decided to persist with my job that I had at that time, which was the, the band, like the band and um, the bookings and gig management and all that, um, which probably kept me going. Um, I had a really enlightening chat with one of the guys I was working with at Revolver and he was talking about his dad who had um, brain cancer and survived, like managed to pull through it. And he said, it's because his dad didn't stop. His dad used to be a triathlete back in the day and just was always doing his daily runs, everything like that, going to the gym and he didn't stop. He reduced it, sure, but he didn't back off and he just kept going. And I was like, all right, that's what I have to do to whatever degree I can. And there's going to be weeks where I can't do that. And there definitely was like, I think for me, um, I was okay for the initial part. I think I'll say I did six months of treatment. So six months of fortnightly, four hour, three to four hour radiation, uh, not radiation, um, chemotherapy treatment. So sit in a chair, get the, get it pumped into you and off you go. Um, the first three months I could push through and it didn't really, I think hit me that much. And I was like, it's fine. Look at me go. I'm working, I'm doing everything. Life's still life to a degree. Um, but then the back end of that, it just got to the point where I was just irritable. Someone would come up to me, how are you going? And I'd just be like, how do you think I'm going? Like, honestly, <laughs> yeah, I'm not so great, mate. I'm not- <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It got to the point where like, I, I was almost being rude, not deliberately, but I was just done. Like, mm. and that, and like I said, I'm lucky. I did six months of chemo and then I did a month of radiation treatment. I call that lucky 
because as I've said, and like you've probably seen some posts that I've done and things like that. It's like, I was sitting in the same, same room waiting area as people that either weren't going to make it or had been like, this is it. They have to stick to it for years if they do want to live. So mm. I think that was a big awakening at that time for me. Um, and, you know, but I did try and push through. So I kept working, kept working and did what I can. And it was funny because the doctor's like, just make sure you're in a workplace that is really, um, you know, got good hygiene and everything like that. And they're like, so where do you work? And I was like, uh, a nightclub. And they're like, okay, um, you're in the office there at least, right? And like, yeah, they're like, okay. Yeah, I think that should be okay. But God, like the look on the doctor's face when he's like, of all the jobs that I could be doing, yeah. working in the club and around the music scene. But um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, look, definitely an interesting time. And yeah, I think, I think the mental side effects of cancer in general is not something that's spoken about enough. I don't know, in my opinion, even when I said to the doctor, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't think I have anxiety diagnosed wise, but I have my moments. That's the way, best way. I Right. And that came definitely from that. Like, even I remember a day that I had treatment, uh, Jay was driving me home and just out of a slip lane, a garbage truck's pulled in front of us. So she's had to slam on the brakes and pretty much go slightly off the road to not rear end a garbage truck. And I lost it. I might, my body just went into a fit. Like I just couldn't. And that was almost a turning point moment for me because from then it's like anything that can, I guess, instigate anxiety does like it, it does push it that little bit, like something major like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it, in my eyes, that was major. I just come back from being pumped full of poison to a degree. And you know, then that happened and it was just too much for me to cope with on that day. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I just think like, yeah, when I spoke to even post, like, you know, um, post-treatment, like going through my remission years now, when I'd go and see the doctor the couple of years after finishing up treatment, I was like, hey, is anxiety a thing in cancer patients, like after it? And he's like, nah, not really. I was like, okay, okay, so just me. Like, it was odd, like just an odd answer. And I was like, surely it is to a degree. Like, you've yeah. just been like, this is something that does in the extreme kill people like surely something in your mind <laughs> like yeah you'd think it would be fairly well expected and understood that it would be the sort of thing if you're going through that that you would be more inclined to potentially have bouts of anxiety or be open to it happening to you uh so it's interesting that that isn't really it's kind of not even uh, addressed as part of the treatment is the mental well-being aspect of things but i guess there's a whole piece there about um, that could be delved into with uh, modern medicine and its lack of a holistic treatment approach in that they treat, <clears throat> I guess, from my very basic understanding is when, when there's a problem, they go hard specifically at the problem, but the things outside of that are kind of left to the patient's own care to, to manage that, that treatment. So whether it's anxiety um, and kind of long-term outlook afterwards, right? So you get rid of something like this and there's still, you know, there's these mental uh, scarring, I suppose, that goes on there because you're like, wow, I went through something that was catastrophic and though it might, I might be in remission now, having known that my life could be derailed like that, I'm sure kind of leaves these kind of after effect thoughts that you need to address yourself and, and come uh, to peace with. Yeah, look, 100%. And I mean, like on a more like lighthearted side of it, the mental effects, like my first treatment, they gave me a lemon icy pole. All right. <laughs> had the lemon icy pole. And they say that this is common. 
I had the lemon icy pole while I was having, obviously getting everything pumped into me. After that, couldn't touch anything lemon flavored. For, I oh, they've ruined it? Ugh. Yeah, four years. And then like, you know, and there was like a story, the guy next to me was like in the, in the same treatment room. He's like, oh, I used to eat my grandma's like Anzac biscuits that I used to love. And she used to make me for the treatment. He goes, I can't eat them anymore. Like the tape <laughs> is associated now. Even the hospital, we'd pull up into the car park towards the tail end of my treatment and I'd need to stop and throw up in a bin. Like, cause wow. I just instantly feel the nausea. And it was like, you know, um, last year in January, I had uh, our twins were born, twin girls. Um, and um, they're like, oh, we're going to transfer you over to the hospital where I had my treatment and everything. And they're like, so when you go there, um, yeah, so you're going to have to take the girls in. I, I was like, oh, I can't go. I, no, like we can't take my newborn daughters to that hospital in particular. And they're like, oh, why? And I said, every time I go there, I literally want to throw up. And you're being dramatic. I'm like, it's just how I feel. And like, you know, it was fine. I got over it once I got there, but I didn't know how I would react because I hadn't been back there really since other than my remission appointments that I'd go to. But even then, like I, I wouldn't quite throw up, but I'd feel sick oh, going to that. So you've created these crazy strong associations with the environment and, and the whole experience. I feel like there's a there's a some sort of crazy weight, weight loss fat in this. <laughs> Jamie, it's like... I'm back across here. <laughs> wow that's that's gnarly well can i i just say look i think you talking about your experiences you know a young fit guy having to go through this sort of stuff um is really powerful and really worthwhile because i remember i saw one of your posts recently um kind of just you reflecting on your remission and that was the impetus for me to go and get my own uh lymph nodes checked i just went you know what like I'd had a little bit of like a uh, like an ear infection a, a few months back and still had kind of a slightly raised lymph node. So I was like, dude, I might just go get this checked. And thankfully nothing, no dramas or anything like that. But I think for that alone, that's, that's a great, uh, a positive uh, effect from such a negative thing that people will kind of be a little bit more empowered to take that extra step rather than just go, oh, it should be okay. Just because as you found, like if you're depending on what stage you're in, if you get onto these things early enough, you can bounce back really, really well. You leave it too late. It can be a totally different story. So 100%, that, that's awesome to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm glad. And that, that's, you know, and that's it. Like there's obviously a lot of um, push for, you know, um, prostate cancer and things like that and breast cancer, which as there should be and everything like that, because they are so prominent, but you're right. Even things like this, you know, like I said, I thought it was just a lingering. I thought it was a lingering cold. That's what I thought. I was like, eh, it's just a bit, even my doctor initially is like, eh, it could just be fluid on the glands. He goes, it happens after, you know, you've had a bit of a fluid, whatever it is. He goes, mm -hmm. it just happens. And then, you know, luckily, yeah, I went the extra bit, got the ultrasound done and things like that. So yeah, you're right. It's like, not to say everyone get into a state of panic when you think something, but just do the right thing. Just get checked. Like it's, it's, you know, we're really lucky. Medical system here is quite good. Mm. Get checked, get the scans done that you need to and just put it to bed. On, on that, Jamie, on the medical system, man, I got like, I got a visit to the GP and I got the ultrasound done and I haven't paid a dollar yet. Like how yeah. crazy is that? How many countries can you say that's possible? I got both tests, both things done in the same day just walking down the local docks. So that's pretty amazing. I think if people are thinking, oh God, $250 scan when my money situation isn't great, dude, the Medicare system takes care of you if you, if you just use the right uh, facilities. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, I didn't pay a cent for any of my treatment. And that's because mm. I'm in Australia. 
<laughs> you know, I've yeah. got a lot of friends in the US and things like that. And they're, they're blown away by the fact that it didn't cost me a dime. You know, mm. over there, they have to run a GoFundMe, like, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> just to go get the treatment I got for free. Yeah, um, that's incredible. A friend, yeah, a friend moved here and he was blown away that even he didn't have to, like, you know, 250 bucks for an ultrasound. He was like, that's amazing. He goes, that's so cheap. <laughs> He was happy to pay it. 75 bucks to go see DP Australian. That's awesome. Like, cause he was thinking in us dollars and he's like, this is unheard of. Like, he's like, I'll just go every week cause I can afford it here. <laughs> so how, how six, six, uh, six years in remission, looking fit and healthy. You've just had, uh, well, not just had, but re- relatively recently had twin, twin yeah. daughters. Yeah. Twin daughters. Yeah. Uh, how, 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 how has this thing changed your outlook on life or not? Like what's, what's well, post everything Jamie feeling like? Yeah, I guess like it, it made the having daughters hard. This has been completely open and honest. My wife and I actually ended up having to try IVF, um, and yep. things like that. It ended up happening naturally, happening, yeah, happening, happening naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't expected. Um, so, which is amazing. The Santilli force is strong. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that like, so that was another battle in itself and just being like, geez, it was like three years of going back and forth with different specialists and things like that. But I guess what I took from it, like, yeah, I, I try and be a po- as positive as I can. Um, it knocked me a bit. I think every now and again, I creep into the mindset of like, oh, I'm not quite where I wanted to be. Like, obviously I'm not, I'm not in music anymore. That's where I w- wish I had stayed. Um, I guess that was a, a collateral damage type thing from having to go through treatment. Uh, the person, the people I worked for and ran events through and everything like that were great. The bands were awesome in terms of understanding, but it did get to a point where it was like, we need someone who can focus a little more. And I couldn't towards the tail end of my treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone like, you know, and even just post-treatment, I guess my mind was just spinning after I'd finished the treatment for a little while there. So, um, you know, everyone persevered with me as much as they could. And then it just kind of slowly dwindled out um, and things like that. But I still, you know, after that, that's when I then headed back to the scooter industry, which was something I did prior to music. Um, uh, before I was just doing store management, basic retail stuff. When I went back, because I had the events knowledge, is when I went on and did like, yeah, uh, international freestyle events for a company called Scooter Hut. Um, and, you know, went overseas to the US, dealt a lot with like London, started a magazine with a friend as well in the scooter industry. And you guys um, were getting that- picked up on on uh, like uh, free-to-air television as well. I remember you got interviewed yeah. and ended up on TV and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it was crazy. So I guess like with that there, that, that was something good, you know, silver lining. Once again, I dropped out of the music industry, but walked back into an industry, which I did enjoy on a retail perspective. So to be able to do something on a more major scale was awesome. You know, I got handed a really neat budget to work with and got to essentially assemble 25, 26 of the world's top riders in this sport. Cause it's a sport, um, you know, it's part of um, like nitro, Nitro Circus has um, in, in taken it on in part of its Nitro World Games. Uh, X Games will forever tiptoe around it. I just don't think they want to admit it's a thing just yet, but it definitely is. Go down um, to your local of- skate park and you'll see that it's a thing. I mean, oh, yeah. there's as many yeah. scooter riders as there are skateboarders, which I would have never thought to see the day. You know, and if not more, and that's it, you know, like, so, Um, yeah, got to run this huge event, which was awesome. It was like 25 grand prize pool, um, one of the biggest at the time um kind of winged my way through it a bit but managed to pull it off and we 
had the uh, the final in the Gold Coast, teed it up with council, so they backed it and everything, and ended up with like I think oh, maybe two, three, four thousand spectators. Like it was pretty big, and like you said, we got news coverage in the end from all the local areas up there. Um, this was just at a local skate park, and we did not expect that amount of spectators to show up, but it just kind of grew and grew. And yeah, the crowds were huge. Like it was, it was, it was good. It was a good, um, I think turning point for the sport as well, mm. you know, props to the riders that came out. Like these guys, you know, came from like, yeah, the U S we had a guy from Estonia, which was hilarious because of customs, they almost didn't let him through. Like they had to call me and I had to vouch that he was legitimately here. What did they think he was doing? It's like he came all the way from Estonia to do what in Australia? You like five words. It was just something like out of a bad like comedy movie kind of thing. Uh, I bet he was sick on the scooter though. (laughs) Yeah, unreal. Like the guy, what did he do? Oh, it was like a 900. Like a 900. On a scooter. Yeah, yeah, over over a box, which like he was one of the first guys to do it. I think he does a 1080 now. Yeah, it's ridiculous. The kid was just insane. He just had no fear. Uh, Rumit Salik was his name and he was just, Unreal, but you know, what I mean? it. <laughs> yeah, and like you know, to make the event run, I had guys like crashing at my house <laughs> just to give give them a calm. The ones that couldn't have, like could afford a ticket here, but then not afford a calm, um, just to pull it together. But we set up a live stream and everything, and we had it running like across Facebook or socials, and like the intake was in the millions across the world, like the viewers wow. and everything. Um, and once you've run something that big or that gets that much attention all the all the the, the bigger brand interest just, interest just pops out of the comes out of the woodwork doesn't it it's like oh wow they've got this many numbers tuning into this thing we want to be associated with it yeah well that's it 100 percent. because i mean the first uh, couple of years that i ran it was mainly just in brand like in, in in scooter brands um that internal brands that supported it um but then yeah once we moved on and kept going then yeah it, then that's it you're right the brand started coming out of the woodworks and really supporting it um you've got a guy called ryan williams who rides in nitro circus and he's renowned for his scooters uh scooter ability um and you know and he's like now i guess pushed to the point where he's on million dollar contracts and things like that and that's it like events like the one that i got to run thankfully uh i guess kind of helped push that like give it another thing because it didn't have something as big as that it had its world championships but the world championships are almost like a semi-pro world championship but to be able to do this and put big money on the table for these guys to collect, you know, the kid that won at the year on the Gold Coast was 14 at the time and took home 15,000 Australian dollars. You know what I mean? Man. So it's like, yeah. So it was, um, it was crazy, but the whole scooter thing, like off the back of that as well, we bought out a kid who, who would, I guess, come to fame on YouTube uh, off the back of scooters. And I'll quickly tell this story because it's hilarious to me. Same thing. Had a setup at um, the Melbourne Scooter Hut store where we were expecting maybe two, three hundred kids to rock up because you know we're like, cool, YouTube, that's something right now. It was about 2018 <laughs> that this happened. <laughs> Early and, days. Uh, yeah, yeah, to a degree. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, cool, vlogger, whatever. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's all she expects. Got no management or anything at this point, this kid, right? No management. We're like, okay, cool. Uh, we had to, we got shut down because the street was that busy. Like it was like we had literally an A-list celebrity. Like I'm talking five, wow. 6,000 kids down the street. Like, uh, to like see this one kid. Around. Yes. Like it got to the point where the only way we could get him out of the store was we had to rush him out the back door. I had to start my car and have the door open and he had to run and dive in 
Like I've got footage of that. <laughs> what yeah, was the, the what was the demographic mix, Jamie, of the kids who were who were coming to see him? Were they all just little clones of him, or were they? Well, to a degree, yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, well, that, that'd be about it. And g- girls, kind of like young, younger girls, like tween girls, like you know, between 15, 16. He was what 17, turning 18 at the time. And like, yeah, it's just crazy. But now this kid, right, has his own factories like across the US that he has like set up as his like fantasy lands of like skateboards, uh, skate parks, and everything. He has a signature Hot Wheels car, <laughs> a Hot Wheels car range, and he's in the ads. Now, like as an endorsee of Hot Wheels and everything, because he went back to the US after that tour. And I was like, you need a manager because we had a four stop tour planned and we ended up having to can it. We got to Perth. Um, There was an incident with a dad who had knocked out a little kid at the event. Um, And we were like, all right, we're done. Like, that's just too much. And yeah, we're like, you need to go back to the US. You need to get a manager and you need to get this together because you can't travel anymore without security. Why had the the dad knocked out a kid? Because the little kid, that kid that he knocked out, pushed his son out of the way to get to this guy. Oh, no. So dad's like, like, hey, I'm going to drop this kid. (laughs) Yeah, it was crazy times. Seriously. But yeah, so... That was a bit of stereo, but yeah, there you go. That's a dive into the scooter world. Um, How yeah. did you guys, out of interest, Jamie, like you, I feel like you guys were ahead of the freestyle scooter craze. Like it was only getting traction and you were running these events when people were probably, the vast majority of, of the kind of the public weren't even across scooters other than you'd see the odd one tootle around. It's not like now where every day you will see a kid on a scooter. So how did you kind of know that the wind was blowing that way and decided you just get all in and get involved in it? Um, look, that's a, probably a credit to the owner of Scooter Hut. His name's Scott. And the guy just has that foresight. Like he just sees things that others don't. Um, and I guess with the fact, like I said, paired up with the fact that I had a, like a knack for events and I had good rapport, I guess, in the scooter industry, even from when I worked in it, it was just a matter of talking to the guys and uh, like the kids in the industry when I say kids as well, there was 20 year olds, you know, 25 year olds riding in the events and just kind of talking to them and just saying, would this work? And it kind of had to be an all in scenario. You know, if five of them said no and five said yes, you probably couldn't do it to the same extent, you know, because you're talking with kids like that have built followings on Instagram already in 2016, 2017 of 150, 300,000 followers on Instagram for scooter riding, you know, and things like that. So, you put all that together 26 times, you know, 200,000 and you're talking a big audience um, and right. things like that. So um, Scott just, I guess, you know, kind of saw it and was like, well, hold on. I run the biggest retailer in the country and now probably the world for this, for this like uh, freestyle sport, so to speak. And he's like, well, it would only make sense that I back the biggest event in that sport and, you know, put some marketing dollars towards that because it's going to work really. Like he, he had full confidence that it would work. We, we'd done some test runs before we went international uh, around Australia and just did a like an Australian pro series where we did just Australian-based riders and the odd guest international would do it, but it would just be, you know, a skate park in Sydney, skate, a couple skate parks in Melbourne, done, 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 whatever. Put it, you know, And that was the end of the event. So to go global was the next step, um, which was funny though, because like even from that extent, like showing that initiative scared a lot of people in retail world of scooters because i'm like wait a minute if you're coming here with your event are you coming here with your stores and it was just a domino effect so there's a lot of management on that side as well to be honest like it was making sure people didn't think we were encroaching even um, when we went to san diego 
a lot of parents were like, hmm, why is this Australian event coming to San Diego? We don't need it. We've got our own events and this and that. Like it was like, yeah, I mean, very patriotic of them, but it was just funny. It's like, this is an international event now. It's not just some Australian event coming here. And yeah, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing to get them to really understand it, to be honest. But um, It's so interesting that there's kind of this resistance to it because it's not local or perceived as local tribe or local community. And like these Aussies coming over here thinking they can run these scooter events. It's like, it's going to be good for the industry, guys. Like, what? Yeah. But like, you know, yeah, like back on that, like just seeing the, like, you know, things, Scott was one of the instigators of um, getting scooters into the Nitro Circus events, which, you know, run by Travis Pastrana, famous, you know, motocross guy, for those that don't know. What famous Nitro lunatic. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But it's a huge arena event that travels the world. And, you know, and he helped push the first couple of guys towards auditioning for it, essentially, um, and doing things like that. Um, he's always been an innovator, to be honest. Um, you know, guy I very much respect and always will. Because, uh, you know, he's always said his story started with a, a garage and $40,000 worth of scooter product. And he had no idea what was going to happen with it. And he just got a, a tip off from a mate that he needed to buy Razor scooter wheels and that he would make... <laughs> bucket loads off it <laughs> just went for it <laughs> yeah i think it's up to six or seven score the stores around australia one of the like the fastest growing online retailers yeah um, wow and so it's um yeah big respects to that guy and you know and that's it and like he helped i guess push the direction of um seeing these things and making those events happen before like you said they were a thing um mm. really just biting the bullet more than anything you've jamie you've obviously i feel like your experience has continually ended up moving towards this event territory. Uh, so maybe just talk to me a little bit more about events. Like how did you firstly get into the, what gave you the idea that you would want to run an event? Where did that come from? Cause that's a big step, right? Like, did you study uh, any sort of event planning in uni or what, how did you get there? Uh, I am, I'm the ultimate wing, winger of things. Um, <laughs> I kind of, I guess if I, feel like an idea is is cooking I'll, I'll just run with it and what happened was when I first got with um Jay um she was a musician at the time and she was playing at music events and things like that and I was kind of sounds really ignorant and too simple but I was literally looking around at these events and going how hard would this be to do <laughs> I contacted um Revolver at the time because you could just like you know you could go and book out that front room if you've got enough of a little like a mini proposal to say I've got a gig I'm going to bring 100 people this is the audience these are my ticket prices the rest is history kind of thing so you so, can literally turn up to venues with a little pitch going look this is what I'm going to run this is the people I think I'm going to bring in and the money I'm going to bring in and if they find it compelling enough you've got yourself in a, a live event yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, not every event, not every venue, but yeah, there's definitely venues around like Melbourne that I've dealt with, and even like like you know, I planned a few mini like national tours where we would go to like, or let's say East Coast tours. So you do Brisbane and you do um, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and head off to Adelaide just to finish it off. And same deal, you know, you mm -hmm. just got to really sell it. So I mean, obviously, a venue wants to make money over the bar, so they need heads through the door. Um, sure. It needs to add with the vibe of the venue um and kind of work with what they're doing and a venue like revolver as well it kind of needs to work off the back room as well so they obviously really like their electronic stuff hip-hop the big thing there and stuff like that because once your event finishes up everyone moves to the back room where the main djs are and then kind of works their way back to the front when it reverts to the dance room kind of thing so you sure. kind of got to work with that 
but that's just you know but yeah so that's where it all started um i was like i want to put a gig together there was a musician that jay <clears throat> was really uh vibing at the time just a melbourne guy acoustic musician mainly pop, poppy kind of stuff got in touch with him i was like would you play a gig if i booked it charged me an exorbitant amount at the time i've learned that now but that's what happens when you're very green and i was like cool yeah that sounds fine and very feasible paid in it's money. like yes <laughs> i've just nailed it <laughs> much and that's what happens man they'll find a dummy every now and again and they'll just charge <laughs> like if I would, like the amount of times that i got done with gig fees uh sometimes it was from the artist or from the the bookers the bookers will try and do it you know or they'll they'll double book you so they'll book you for you'll pay two and a half grand for an act for the saturday night not knowing that they've got a gig planned for the friday night that they'll do a late announce on where they you know it might just be something else that they're playing down the road and there's a lot of logistics to it you know um yeah with the way you book gigs but um yeah so back at the planning of it i just went to revolver they were really good at the time the chick who was booking the venue before i then took her place funnily enough down the track um she was really good and kind of helpful kind of just get like they give you a booking sheet and they give you an explanation they've got their in-house sound guys and things like that you kind of just need to make sure the acts rock up on time uh i guess they're looked after they know what times they're playing uh you got to have a door person if not revolver does have door people that can help you out and you just got to make sure yeah, it just runs smoothly, I guess, from that point. If there is any backline gear, so like any gear that the musicians need on stage that they're not supplying, all that, 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 that uh, all that's in check. Um, and then I guess from the bigger picture, the marketing side of it. The first sure. event I ran, I was lucky because Jay was on the event as well. Um, it was more so let's pack this room with as many friends as we can. Um, I, I branded it as a Roots of Music, which is what I decided to call my little company at the time, um, launch night as well, and just kind of packed the room as much as we could at that point. I, at that point, did not realize I would get a call later on to then book for the Revolver Band Room, um, uh, I guess, full-time. Um, but yeah, so it kind of led to that. But yeah, I, I winged my way through that event. It worked out. And then as I went on, I kind of learned more and more um, I got paired up with a guy called Jamie Bennett, who does a lot of Red, Red Bull Music Academy um, bookings for Australia and things like that. The guy's like been around an eternity and he just knows his stuff. Um, he was a great guy, to be honest. Um, he, he'd really help with like any bookings I get stuck on. He'd help with it. Marketing ideas, he'd push um, and things like that. And yeah, it was kind of just building rapport and learning from other people in the industry. Um, yeah. Very uh, cool. Have you had imagining well not imagining like knowing that you've run a lot of different events with different people and i can only imagine especially with the the, in the revolver context have you had any situations where that you've just gone like because you're kind of responsible for the artist right by the time they turn up the event is yours so everything that happens in there is kind of your responsibility to an extent have you had any crazy stuff go down with artists turning up just not in form or just not not delivering at the level that they were expected to yeah look i think so like nothing too crazy but i did have a an ex-australian idol guy (laughs) i won't name names but he came through and he was just like just so down on the concept of like not down in a down on the idea like woo it was like down like not good down negative no, no, no. Down. negative down very negative down i was like oh you know so this is cool like it's gonna be a fun little gig and all this and he's like yeah it's great you know went through all that and like he was an alumni like 
early seasons Australian Idol, you know, when they were still doing arena tours as part of the, I guess, the prize. And he's like, yeah, it's great. Look at me. He goes, I'm almost 40 and playing rooms of like 30 people. <laughs> like that was literally word for word. And he's like, I, can you just like grab me some food and a tea? Oh, like, no. Oh, no worries, buddy. And I was like, this is just, look, he pulled it together on stage to a degree. They loved him. And I just like, I don't know. It was just, that was, I was pretty stumped. <laughs> I was like, what do you do with a guy who is literally that negative about what he's going to do? You didn't know what he was going to do on stage. Um, you know, that's hard. So do you think that he was kind of thinking I should be doing stadium gigs? I'm, I'm the guy and I'm doing this little, this little backroom deal. And I am, you know, I should be killing it right now. I think so. And I also, like, going real deep on him, I think he was just like, I think there's a lot more to it. <laughs> I think he'd been doing the little gigs for a little while now. And yeah. it just had created at him at the point of like, this isn't where I saw life. This wasn't yeah. what I'd planned. Like, you know, I, I, I meant to be, like you said, I meant to be doing the stadium gigs and have kept doing them. Um, and, you know, but I actually got to speak to him a bit more after the gig and he had turned around a bit. He did enjoy it at the end, but it wasn't looking great at the start. And we actually got him back and we ended up selling out the room and I told him that. And I said to him, I go, look, let me try and string something together. I'll get some stronger local acts on for you. And we'll just, that room will be packed hand on heart. You'll have a packed room next time. And yeah, I got the call from his booking agent a couple of days later being like, look, he really liked what you said. Um, he wants to give it a crack. He goes, let's set it like three months time. Let's give it another go then. And we did. And like I said, yeah, packed out the room, complete different vibe. The guy was loving it. And yeah, you know, it was a different, different kind of scenario. But I guess he'd just been to like a lot of little venues where he probably just got told, yeah, yeah, there's your stage. There's, you know, whatever. There's your rider, which is a free meal coupon. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. He probably didn't expect someone to stop and talk to him <laughs> about. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I think that would have made a huge difference. And I, I, I can only assume it's very challenging to be an artist in any context, uh, especially one where you're putting yourself out there like that. And because I guess to be creative and to continually get up on the stage and do your thing, you have to be inspired, right? So if you don't feel for whatever reason that this isn't, that it is inspiring you, it would be hard to get up there and do your thing. But I think to, to the, to the point of you actually asking him kind of delving in a little bit deeper, like, you know, just saying hi and working out what's going on he probably is so not used to tour managers or, or tour people actually opening the door like that to give a shit that that was probably in its own way, like really inspiring to him in some manner and got him kind of re-railed on the whole concept. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. And I mean, that was something, like I said, I picked up from other good bookers was I would try. And if an act wasn't, you know, I guess too big for their boots and they were happy to do it, I'd have dinner with them before a gig or something. You know what I mean? I'd book a table That's cool. at uh, General Tans there, the Thai restaurant, you know, mm -hmm. one of my favorite restaurants in the whole of Australia. Um, <laughs> um, and I'd just, you know, I'd go, go back there, sit down with them for an hour and just literally just talk, you know, talk life, <laughs> whatever, talk whatever they wanted to talk about, talk about the gig that was going to happen that night, you know, how we went with promo, you know, um, and it was good. I felt like that was always a better result. You know, um, 100% always a better result. You got a better vibe from them. Um, if you did get them back again for another gig, there'd always be, there'd be more people automatically because they would automatically push it more the next time. Because, um, you know, I guess we talked about it with scooter riders. It was the same thing with musicians. If the musician's not in on the gig, well, you might as well not have the gig um, mm. because people aren't going to come. Everyone needs to buy in to make tickets sell. You know, 
um, for a period there, which was very unrevolver. Like I ran country music gigs at Revolver. And that was a big thing, um, I guess, for country music to be doing like city-based gigs as well. Um, so I had a lot of really like relevant acts come through from Australian country music scene. And um, you'd see it. The ones that were like, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to break into the city. And like they use it as almost like a big initiative to them to like, we're not just country, we're city people and like make a big push for it. You'd sell tickets. No worries. Then the ones that would be like, oh, cool. It's another gig on the tour poster. You'd have 10 people in the room. And wow. it's just it's like, yeah. Isn't the that interesting? Thing. Like the buying is definitely a big thing. Yeah. So you get, yeah, that opportunity, like some people really, really stepped up for it and their perception of what it was, what you were offering them by performing uh, could for them be really, really amazing and a big step up. And you'd, you'd get them turning up and just really embracing the situation i feel like you are a natural at this at this music thing jamie you're ever going to get back into kind of running these events and because you know sitting there and having dinner with the with the crew like i can just imagine how much they dug that compared to the average guy who does this and just kind of treats them like cattle yeah look yeah i i, I definitely think it's it's in me to want to do it again um i even enjoyed it like i was talking like you know that's more so in the big acts but i even like the the little acts you know like the local bands i got to deal with and stuff that was kind of that was cool as well you know doing a lot of business planning with them and stuff like that and working that out but yeah it's something i definitely miss you know like uh, i reminisce often about like gigs you know with like the one the gigs i think that stand out to me there's a couple of with bigger known acts that like you know were sellouts and that was great and awesome but it was like a band called the sand dollars just a bunch of kids from like the southeast of melbourne and they sold out the toff and that to me was just unreal probably one of my proudest nights same as um albert salt who i mentioned earlier same thing you know he sold out the revolver band room and then he went to play a gig in adelaide got to play a sold out gig there and you know same thing with that like those are the acts that were just like local acts in to a degree like low level ones to sell out rooms with 200 300 payers is unreal you know for these these guys that are just early twenties or, you know, didn't even expect, you know, they'll just playing their music for the hell of it. Um, yeah. That's cool. You know, you, when I think of those moments, yeah. I, I want to get back into it <laughs> for sure. Like you doing that, Jamie, it's, it's just such a, like a, from an outsider looking in epic in itself, because you're being a conduit for these people to, to really reach their kind of dreams and, and vision and this sort of thing. So and you obviously really enjoy doing it. So I do hope you get back into it at some stage, mate. We'll, we'll have to discuss this offline at some point. We'll be like 2021 20, might be the year, Jimmy. You never know. You never know. Well, there's the hunger for music now because we missed a lot of it last year, I think. Well, this music. is it. Like, man, yeah. I, I feel like you're the golden era of Melbourne music to a large extent stopped at the at last year, right? Like that, that era was largely finished and a new one's going to start and it's going to be a little bit more hybrid than it used to be, but it's definitely going to come back because this city is all about that, you know? Uh, yes. I so agree. being part of that resurgence would be really interesting. For sure. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I think there's a big wave coming. Like there's a lot of acts that, you know, uh, if you, you know, triple J that have pushed and triple J's just got their international recognition has just gone off the charts as well. I think, I don't know. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Not, not that it hasn't always been there, but it's just gone to another level now. Like yeah. if you are top 10 on Triple J or on top 10 rotation, you're going to make it overseas. It's almost a given now. It's yeah, crazy. it has prestige, like genuine genuine prestige. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. pretty awesome. Go Australian yeah, music. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
Now, Jamie, let's talk uh, Mountain Thousand. Um, yes. So this is, you know, which is kind of crazy. It's like this Mountain Thousand project is so much like my doing epic stuff project in a way like this. They're, they're so in synergistic uh, in that we're both interested in this, you know, following the journey of individuals from all works of life who are chasing or living their passion. That's the Mountain Thousand kind of about us. Uh, and mine's all, all about sort of ordinary people finding their extraordinary in whatever context that is. So bit of a, I think we're, we're somehow like star crossed to catch up again, Jamie, because we met in this co-working hub. We've done yeah. these different things. So this is cool. Um, yeah. So tell me, tell me what Mountain Thousand is and does and why you got this thing off the ground. So Mountain Thousand, it did start a few years back with a good mate of mine. Um, and same thing, we kind of got talking and I guess probably the same realization you had that you meet a lot of people and you're like, holy crap, like what you're talking to me about is unreal. Like, uh, like how are you, someone I'm just talking to casually and you've done this, this and this. Like, it's just, you know, I met a guy that um, used to work for me at Osmosis. I'll use this as a quick example. Osmosis is a surf store, right? And he was a backpacker from Canada. And I was like, oh yeah, so, you know, you've been backpacking long. He's like 18 years. I was like, pardon? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. He goes, yeah, I was just like, I just kind of got stuck in it and I love it. He goes, like the story goes that he like won some small lottery, not like a massive one, invested some of his money back home, like bought a house there and just travels off the back of it and just does odd jobs wherever he goes. And like this guy's life's phenomenal. And now he's like, you know, a free climber and stuff like that. And he's got a wife now who's also a free climber. And, you know, he does, he's done hikes through the back of India and like um, crazy stories. And, you know, like he, like, I remember I offered him, it was his farewell party because he was finally, finally leaving Australia, heading off to his next destination. I was like, Oh, did you want to ride home? And he's like, no, he goes, what good stories ever started with? I got in my friend's car and had a nice, quiet, safe ride home. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I'd rather walk home and see what happens. And that's just <laughs> oh my God. every parent's <laughs> nightmare. This dude. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Hey, but like, it was just a prime example of someone I met. And I was like, what do you like? How, like, what do you mean? This is what you do kind of thing. And it's like an alien. Like, yeah, it just stemmed from there. And it was like, you know, everywhere I'd go, I'd meet someone else who had done something else that was ridiculous or, you know, when I say ridiculous, just like good on them, <laughs> like really for yeah. doing the thing that wasn't commonplace, you know. Um, same thing, like when I went over to the States, met other people and like I've been to Nashville a few times and um, there was like, you know, the drummer from who was part of Placebo for years and God, I can't remember his name right now, but he was like a 10 year drummer for Placebo. He now owns a record store in Nashville and runs gigs out the back of the record store. And it's like, that's a cool story in itself. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, I love it. I'd love more people to know that story and, you know, and things like that. And um, like one of the people I featured on uh, Mountain Thousand was this chick, uh, Katrina Brooks. And same thing for her. She's just a, she's a makeup artist, but the way she's built her career is phenomenal in, in Nashville. And she's kind of stemmed into other things. She's revamped a, um, an old caravan. And now that's used as props for photo shoots that she does things at. And she's like built herself to be award-winning and doing, uh, you know, makeup on award-winning video clips for country music and, um, even pop artists and things like that. And it's like just little things like that. Just the, you know, you walk into a bar, sit down, talk to the person next to you and you never know what they're going to come out with. Um, <laughs> and like, so, so from those experiences, you essentially created the mountain thousand website, right? Mountain thousand.com.au. And that's yep. almost, I kind of cla classified as like a, it's almost like an online publisher, right? Cause you've got blog content and podcasts um, some third-party content. Is that kind of the gist? 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's almost, yeah, just collating, collating anything of interest really and putting it there. Mm -hmm. um, pretty, pretty look inconsistent, I guess, as you said, over the past year and everything with everything going on, uh, consistency hasn't been there, but this is definitely a point where, yeah, I think the consistency is going to lift. Um, I've got a lot of friends that are now interested in contributing to it and, you know, telling stories of people that they've met and things like that and putting that up there. And that's kind of what I would want. I'd want it to stem further. It's almost like a, it doesn't need to just be me who's met someone of interest. It can be yeah. anyone. Create um, a little bit of a movement, right? And a little bit of a community who are, you know, enthused to also spread these stories and tell the stories. And yeah, I think that's a great approach. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, and the podcast inside of it, yeah, it's just something I find fun. I, I, I honestly enjoy talking to people, um, as you can tell. And it's just <laughs> something I, I do just because I enjoy it. Uh, I am a talker. I've always been that person. I think I get it from my dad being a barber. <laughs> oh, of you know, course. He'd have all the stories. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things, you know, it's just, I think I got, I got the gift of the gab from him, but I, it's just yeah. how I've been, you know, anytime, even when I had new staff like that I'd hired back in retail, I wouldn't just be like, yeah, cool. Grab your name tag and go start serving customers. I'd always have to ask like, so why are you here? You know, what are you doing? And you're at uni, you're doing this, you know, what's your hobbies on the, uh, when you're not here. And like, I'd always have to know more. It's just how I am. Even now in my day job at the moment, I, I have to do that. Like, I just have to go up to a new starter and be like, how you going? So why are you here? Is this going to be your career? Like, what are you doing? Like, I just have to know. Like, it's just one of those things, you know? Um, Cause I think I also feel like I, I want to help if it isn't, mm. I don't know been that way. Um, but yeah, that's, that's always kind of been the, the other thing I, I was going to touch on Jamie is I feel like you, one, you're interested, which is its own, it, that's a valuable thing to give a shit. Like a lot of people just go around not giving a shit. But two, you always seem to be trying to kind of work out a solution for people to kind of help them to the next step, which I think is uh, a really valuable and beautiful thing too. And I think it's held you in, in good stead, especially in like human interaction uh, context. And, and, you know, the importance of emotional intelligence and soft skills is, you know, only, only going to increase and rise. So I think, you know, people just like to, to feel like someone gives a shit, man. I think that's really valuable. Uh, yeah. So what have you from this Mountain Thousand project so far? What do you think distinguishes people? I almost think of people in two groups, maybe even three groups, right? There's like people who feel like they're doing what they want to be doing or chasing their purpose. They're actively doing it. Uh, and as you and I both know, sometimes you go in and out of chasing your purpose directly. Sometimes it has to be indirect, right? You've got to pay the bills, uh, life changes, you know, you, get, you can get ill, you can get all sorts of things can happen to you that means that the path to whatever your goal or whatever it is can change. Or sometimes you have to take kind of different steps across the pond, right, to get there. But ultimately, there's people who are kind of know what they want to do and are heading towards it. <clears throat> then you've got people who are like, I don't actually... Actually, I know what I'd like to be doing, but I have no idea how to get there, right? So for whatever circumstance there, they might be working in a really, you know, a job that just takes up too much of their time or again, life circumstances change things, but they've got a goal or a vision that they would like to be doing, but they're just not pursuing it in any way, shape or form. And then there's the third group, which is kind of like, Chris, I don't know what I really want. I'm just kind of like, I'm just, I'm just doing what I do and I'm living and I'm pretty content. Not necessarily a bad thing, but they're kind of just happy just coasting along. Yeah. So I guess from group one and group two, group one who are kind of like actively pursuing their passions uh, and doing that kind of, you know, 
regularly or, or irregularly, but kind of know what they want and what they're going for. And group two who are like, look, I'd like to be doing that, but I'm not, and I don't even know where to start. How do you think we get more people from group two to move towards group one, to kind of shift gears from that, like, I'd like to mindset to the I'm taking action towards actually doing it mindset? I think it's don't overwhelm yourself. I think that's probably key to it. Don't feel like you have to go head first into it. You can do little things to, I guess, you know, move things along and in the right direction that you want. Um, and I think that's where people look, I, I, I get it. And it is a very age old thing to say, you know, you've got to go all in. And I've said it a lot through this with like the buy-ins and things like that, but that's, I guess, a, a different kind of buy-in, but with your idea, yes, you need to buy into the fact that your idea is going to work. That's for sure. Like a hundred percent, but it doesn't mean that you need to make it happen tomorrow. You know what I mean? I think the best example I can give is a musician's career, given that that's something that I've dealt with a lot. And even having a, a, you know, Jay is a musician herself and like her, like I'd still class her as a musician, although it's had its ups and downs. I mean, she hasn't signed a record deal yet, but she's, you know, she's played gigs regularly. She's done some cool stuff. She's gone overseas for music, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a good example. Just because it's not always consistent doesn't mean the idea isn't happening. I mm. think like that's the best way to look at it. Does that make sense? Like you can still be heading towards what you want to ultimately, but just because it's not happening as quickly as you may have wanted it to or something like that doesn't mean it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what you've got to set. Like maybe if, if you are someone trying to move to become a category A per, uh, category one person, then start setting littler goals and just go, all right, I'm going to do this and it's going to help set up the next thing. You know what I mean? And um, things like that. Like even myself, like I, I run an online scooter store now as well don't commonly advertise it, but I have one that I run and even myself that there, I've probably been a little, you know, just picking at it. Um, I have a week off coming up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set some time in that week and I'm going to set myself a list and start hitting more goals on that, you know, look at some marketing ideas and break down a few things on that and reassess it. Do you know what I mean? And it's like just things like that. You, mm-hmm. you don't need to always be full steam ahead for an idea to work. That's I think it. that's the way to be. Yeah. yeah, I get it. I, I I think I totally agree with you there in that I think what what stops people from starting a lot of the time is that it, this construct, this pressure construct they've kind of created for themselves that, you know, if this doesn't happen by X date or if I can't go from point A to point D uh, straight away, there's no point even trying it. But it's those little, it's the little steps, isn't it? And just kind of getting more of like a, a taking action mindset, even if it's like, I, I checked out this thing this week that was in the media about the 5.30 a.m. club, right? Yeah, Where yeah. there's a whole group of people getting up at 5.30, just spending one hour on something that interests them before they then start their day. Now that's a really cool, accessible thing that everyone could do by maybe losing an hour in the evening to Netflix and starting an hour in the start of the day where they're getting up, hanging with like-minded people, having a coffee, learning a language through Duolingo, whatever it is. I thought that was a beautiful kind of actionable example that an enemy of us could be doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm big on that concept as well. Um, I had the, did I do the book audio book? But yeah, I've read the book and it's actually a really cool book to read as well. Yeah. About the five club. And um, it's really interesting. Yeah. And you're right. And that's it. Like when you say you don't have the time in the day, it's because you haven't looked hard enough. Because I, th- I think you can find, like you said, an hour. 
it's it's just how you use that hour. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently reading through a book, the the art of essentialism, and it's just like it, the whole concept of that is is finding the things that are essential. You know what I mean? If someone asks you to go do X thing and you're like, Ugh, I don't really want to do it, but I sh- I'll just go. Well, then you're not really you, you're wasting time. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know you you can politely be like, no, I'm not down for that. I'm going to go and spend two hours on this thing that I'm working on instead. Do you know what I mean? It's like sure. it's really just working out. It, it even talks to like even in people that just have structured day jobs, working a nine to five. Like when someone comes up to you at work, can you help with this? Really thinking about can you help with it, or are you busy in your own work kind of thing? You know, and that's kind yeah. of something that to just day to day life. It's like oh, I can do go and do that, but should I? Maybe not. <laughs> right, right. So riffing on that art of essentialism thing, I guess when you're approached with an opportunity or someone asking for your time, you have a, a conscious decision to be made there. You can unconsciously just go with whatever they've asked, or you can consciously stop and go, hang on, is this in alignment with something that I actually care about? And you might just do it to help the person and helping that person is what you care about, right? In that context. But if you're kind of just doing things without actually knowing what your, I guess you could almost say your, your outcome vision is or your purpose is in, in different contexts, it's very easy to just do stuff, right? That isn't actually moving towards something that you had consciously defined as, as being of, of interest or value to you. So without getting too spinny, I think that's all really interesting stuff about, you know, uh, being able to step back and, have a bit of uh, perspective before you commit your time to things to work out, Hey, is this really what I want for me and where's it's going to lead to versus me just doing something else that I could use this time for. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, and the big thing around that is people, I guess, caught, get caught up in the concept of oh, it's selfish, you know, and you've got to kind of wipe that from your mind. You know what I mean? It's not selfish. If you take a minute, it's fine. If you're really that self-conscious about being looked at as selfish, if you are using time for yourself, you can do quick diversions. You can be like, if someone, like I said, use the work example, you come up to me at work and say, I need a hand with this. I'd be like, oh, can't really help you right now, but X person probably could. Or, yeah. you know what, if you don't ask this person, they're actually more in tune with that than me, they'll probably give you a quicker answer. Do you know what I mean? And then that's it. You've helped, you've done it, but you haven't then taken from your time. And mm-hmm. it's just like little things like that, you know, like, so it's just, yeah, exactly. It's, it's learning that there, there's a difference. There's not, it's not always selfish when you want to do something for yourself. It's not. Agreed. Agreed. So tell me, Jamie, I'm just going to ask you a couple of like final section doing epic stuff, post-fired interview questions. Uh, Are you, what are you trying to get better at at the moment? Are you practicing anything? Um, You know what? Funnily enough, time management. I think that's something like even myself, like that's why I'm reading the book, to be honest. Like I needed to get better at that. Uh, I do get, I guess, side sidetracked by helping other people a lot. Um, as I've mentioned a few times. Because you're a giver. (laughs) That's your problem. It comes from the family. I I really do. I I love doing it. You know, know, I had someone, a friend of mine, she's like, oh, my sister wants to start a cookie business. Can you help with that? I'm like, I really don't have the time. Next thing you know, I'm driving to their house. You've got an apron on. (laughs) I literally like, oh, cookies. Yeah, you can start a cookie business. Let's do it. You know, and it's, it's like, and yeah, so that's what I'm getting better at. Like, I've got to get better at saying the no's and putting the time into my own mm-hmm. things. 100%. Yeah, 100%. That's a great one. We'll, we'll talk about this offline as well. I'll send you through some stuff. I'm super interested in, in the whole productivity and time management thing. And I believe it's one of the single most uh, kind of underlooked 
underappreciated aspects of moving towards anything in any context. I mean, I've sat in so many meetings in so many uh, professional contexts and thought to myself, why are we actually having this meeting? Has anyone actually decided what the point was of this? And so many times I can easily answer that and say, no. Uh, and you can do that. You can play those games with yourself too. You can just do things or you can get better at kind of working out what the outcome was and spending the time and doing brainstorming and all that sort of stuff and allocating your day. It's a real, you know, I think I thought I was really, really good at that a few years back. And then I got into a professional position at one point that was so demanding that I had to completely destroy my time management system and start again from the ground up. And then you realize that like anything, there's levels to this game, right? Like you think you're good at something and then you get it rocked and fully tested and you realize that, hang on, I might not actually be that good at managing my time. So I think there's this huge value in that alone. Yeah, hundred percent. I'd have, yeah, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. What, what is the, what is the Jamie uh, daily routine consist of? You, you're juggling beautiful kids and, and you've got bits going on professionally. Do you have any sort of set things you do every day to make sure like you get your Jamie time or what happens? Um, yeah. Yeah. Look to a degree. I mean, I, I kind of, um, now that I'm kind of going on a bit of a fit, fit binge, like that's something like it sounds ridiculous, but a daily walk is something I need to do just for yeah, some ripper. Um, for, for sure. Um, that's a little thing, but like, I mean, I'm not too good as an early riser. I'm trying to change that. Hence, once again, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those things, but you know, I guess kids change that because <laughs> I don't sure. know what it's anymore, but you know, so look, yeah, the day starts obviously with my girls and I think family is just very important to me. So I always start the day, obviously seeing them, you know, going on from there, work from home has changed things because no commute anymore. Uh, for me, it's, uh, just sitting in the office at home. Um, that we have set up um, and then look after that yeah I try and clock off as close to clo like yeah uh, finish time as I can and just kind of I, I'll go and sit down and do nothing for an hour with family usually like you know if the kids are around and stuff like that and that's very big unwind time for me and then um, usually it's uh, dinner kids to bed and then doing then that's when I'll do anything that's involved creativity uh, mm. I'll, I'll, well, every night even if it's seriously even if it's 20 minutes I'll just I have to do something to do with something I'm doing, whether it's the online scooter store, doing some stock checks, answering some emails, whether it's the man of thousand quickly whacking an article up there, whatever it is, or, you know, it, it's, I've got to do something. It'd be 20 minutes. If I get two hours, awesome. If I get 20 minutes, cool. It is what it is. But, yeah. So you've, you've kind of compartmentalized that part of your day, you're like creativity block go. And then, you know, when you get into that time zone that it's like, okay, I've got this time to think and be creative. And it, it, you don't feel like you're not getting that every day, which is cool. Absolutely goes back to what i said like with the baby steps kind of thing you know i'm still working towards ideas just because it's not the same amount of time every day doesn't mean it's not happening you know mm. what i mean you just got to roll with it if it's 20 minutes it's 20 minutes if it's an hour or if it's half a day that i get to focus on something awesome mm. um, you know it all That's matters cool. yeah and one last question jamie so when things get a bit shitty when they get a bit tough when you hit a dip in motivation what's what's your kind of thing to come back up what what, what makes you happy what gets you on a good vibe again um look i think and it's so cliche but seriously family time like mm -hmm. for me i think like this come off the back of even what i went through health wise and stuff it's so important like you know even if it's not family time even if like if if jay's not around or whatever and i'm having a slump it's even just talking to a friend or something like that really i just need to talk to someone 
And even yeah. if it's not about yeah. the problem, I just need to, I just need something. I need interaction. People, like social interaction is what just gets me buzzing again. Um, 100%. That, that, that's, that's all I need to get me going. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. For the latest Doing Epic Stuff happenings, you can join our newsletter on mailchimp.doingepicstuff.com forward slash subscribe, or you can find us at facebook.com forward slash doingepicstuff. And for direct inquiries, catch me on mike at doingepicstuff.com. We out.